All right, we're going to read Joshua chapter 3 and chapter 4. Joshua 3 begins this way. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out for Shittim and uh, went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Joshua said to the priests, take up the ark of the covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come, here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you, and that he will certainly drive out before you, the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Parasites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from among the people one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had appointed from the the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go before the ark of the Lord your God in the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israelites to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. 
So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. Now the priests who carry the Ark remained standing in the middle of Jordan until everything the Lord had commanded Joshua was done by the people, just as Moses had directed Joshua. And the people hurried over. And as soon as the, all of them had crossed, the ark of the Lord and the priests came to the other side while the people watched. The men of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over armed in front of the Israelites as Moses had directed them. About 40,000 armed for battle crossed over before the Lord to the plains of Jericho for war. And that day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel and they revered him all the days of his life, just as they had revered Moses. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And the priests came up out of the river carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up to the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their fathers, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan River before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan just what he had done to the Red Sea. And when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, that's a lot of scripture, but as you might recall over the years, I like context. I want us to see the whole picture in order to understand. And these were scriptures that I read to you around six years ago. You might recall this scene that's on the screen right now. About six years ago, I made a large pile of rocks right up here in the space just behind me. And the rocks had been taken from the ground that the parsonage is on, the new parsonage. When we came here, that parsonage was brand new and in some ways not even complete. And so when we moved here, we were moving into a house that had been built for a new vision to be fulfilled. And that really struck me. One of the things that assured me that God was at work here was this recognition that you had stepped out in faith to build that house, that you had made a decision that involved a great deal of risk for you because you really had no way of knowing that what you hoped would happen as a result of building that house would actually happen. So you took a step of faith. And you built that house, you, you risked putting the money up, you risked the process of making that house a reality. You ran into difficulty along the way, not the least of which, plenty of rocks. 
And as I understood the story, there were rocks that were removed from the area where the foundation of this new parsonage that I've lived in these last six years stands that were quite large. In fact, they're in my backyard right now. And these rocks that I brought to the sanctuary were among those that I could carry. And uh, I didn't have 12 friends who carried one each on their shoulder. I did it myself. Somebody might even say, well, why didn't you bring your pile back for today? And all I can say is, is I'm six years older. (laughs) Not only is my body older, but I'm a little smarter than I was back then. But those rocks are still here. Now, Vicki knows what I'm talking about. Because after we'd had that series of messages based on the story of Joshua and the pile of rocks that were their stones of remembrance... The time passed and I eventually took the rocks and I put them out in the flower bed near the entrance on the north side. And I piled them up pretty much the same as they were in here in the sanctuary and thought to myself, well, as people come in, they'll see that and it will remind them that we have a stone of remembrance where we put faith into action as this house was built and as we trusted the Lord for a future that had a lot of unknowns associated with it. And, and that was my vision. And then we had about a year later, a, uh, one of our church cleanup days where we were doing flower beds and cleaning up and everything. And Vicki, we, we had just acquired Vicki as part of our church family. And, and she was she was known to be quite good with flower beds and things like that. And at one point she came to me and she said, there was this really weird looking pile of rocks in the one flower bed. So I spread them out and I made them look a lot nicer. And poor Vicky looked at me and saw for just a second a flash of pain on my face. And I've seen that flash of pain plenty of times in church people's faces. You know, when you take that thing that was really sacred to one of us once upon a time and you move it. Or you do something with it that was considered an abomination before your time. But to you, it's just a pile of rocks. <laughs> so, but then, you know, what happened, Vicki? This is why I warned you ahead of time that I was going to cite you on this one. But the, the thing is, is that for a second I saw that it hurt you to think that you'd hurt me somehow. And, and I thought, no, no. When that happens to me as a pastor, it frustrates me to death because we're just trying to keep moving forward here. And, you know, things are just things. The, the rocks have served their purpose. They stood here for a while and reminded us that we stepped out in faith and we built this house. And they stood out there for a while to remind us a little bit. And then they became part of the flower beds and they're still there. But the memory is still here and the message still stands. And the rocks are just rocks. And for what it's worth, you can go to the backyard of the parsonage and you can see the big ones that didn't get so far as over here. They got to the backyard and they sat there for a couple of years serving no particular purpose until John Hamilton mistakenly left his keys in his backhoe and set them in my backyard. (laughs) Because as soon as uh, I found out that I could understand the workings of a backhoe, I started moving rocks around. And uh, I got his permission, but we turned that pile of very large rocks into a fire pit and you can go and sit there with your new pastor family and enjoy a fire. But keep in mind that even though it sort of looks like Corinth Henge, it's, thanks Tony, can always count on you. It's still stones of remembrance. It's still part of what used to be in that piece of land 
that is there to remind you of the stones that were moved and the things you went through in faith in order to get to the promise that God had for you. Now, I am very aware that there will be those who will probably question whether or not God's promise was fulfilled as much as they expected it to be. But the reality is, is in faith, you stepped out. And in faith, I stepped out. And together, we've traveled six years now toward a promise that God set before us. And what we've learned are some really basic things that you can take from the story of Joshua. And so for a couple of minutes, I want to share that with you. Look at Joshua, for example, and you can see that he was completely dedicated to God's plan. That he was focused on what God wanted done and nothing more. You know, in church, we have to be so careful all the time to guard against being more concerned about the feelings of people and the opinions of people than God. Nothing matters more than pleasing God. That's the whole purpose of this institution. The church, the body of Christ, is here in order to be the arms and the legs and the hands and the feet and the mind and the, and the voice of God expressed through Christ. So Christ made it possible for us to be the church with a capital C, and we are that. And so one of the things we have to guard against constantly is getting too wrapped up in making sure that we don't make anybody unhappy. Because there's only one person that needs to be happy with what we do here, and that's God. And so Joshua was focused on that. And Joshua knew that God was, had declared Moses his friend. Joshua was expected to take over for Moses, not only as the leader of the people, but as God's friend. Now, if your primary purpose is to be God's friend, then everything you do is going to be focused on what's best according to God's plan. And so that's what Joshua did. Joshua was, was committed to the long term. He understood that things take time. He understood that faith is not always immediately rewarded. And we know this, for example, because when Moses had sent out spies into the promised land, there were 12 spies that went into the promised land. Two of them were Joshua and Caleb, and those two guys were the only ones that came back with a positive report. The other 10 guys came back and said, ha, place is full of giants. Those people are horrible, scary people. We're never going to survive any kind of encounter with those people. Joshua and Caleb came back and said, did you see the size of the grapes? They got grapes as big as watermelons in that place. There's the difference between these 10 people and those two people. They saw the size of the bounty and had absolute confidence that God would take care of winning the victory to receive the promise. But because of the lack of faith of the other 10 and all the people they represented, They had to wait 40 years to see the promise fulfilled. But now Joshua stands there on the brink of taking the promised land. And he still is confident as ever that God can defeat any obstacle. And for the moment, the obstacle is a flooded Jordan River. Now, I've told you before, the Jordan River isn't a really big river as far as us Midwesterners are concerned. We've seen bigger rivers, but the Jordan River is still, when it's flooded, a substantial bit of water. 
And if you've looked at this no-name creek over here behind the church on a season when it's been raining a lot and it's flooded way out of its banks, it's pretty intimidating for a creek. And this is exactly what they are confronted with as they're about to march literally thousands of people across this flooded river. Yet Joshua was confident. He went to the Lord, he prayed, he waited on the Lord, the Lord gave him instruction, he went to the people, he said, here's what God says, and they obeyed. Because when God puts a leader in front of you and anoints that leader and appoints that leader, then the leaders of of the various levels below that also trust that God is in charge. Now, the most important thing about this leader then has to be that it is clear their focus is on the Lord and not on people. So Joshua faced the obstacles confidently. He didn't have any problem anticipating that God would make it possible to overcome the obstacles, the giants, the flooded river. Every time somebody would tell him about what was bothering them about this new promise that they were hoping to encounter soon, his answer was always, but have you seen the size of the grapes? Now, I can tell you that in my time here as your pastor, there have been private conversations where someone will say to me, Pastor, you're just so far ahead of us. You're over there on that hill looking way beyond, and we're way back here trying to figure out how just to get to where you are. You know, that's the problem with leaders like us. We keep saying, did you see the size of the grapes? But that's what what leaders do. They focus you on the outcome and the vision, and then they come back and get you periodically and bring you a little closer to that. And that is what leaders do. That's what Joshua did. People will get afraid. People will push back. There will be those times when there is criticism and condescension in the ranks, and it will become in many ways as bad an obstacle for the leaders as any flooded river or any giants with giant tools and giant war material. The fact is, is that it takes a lot of courage to trust God. It takes a tremendous amount of courage to trust God and understand that courage is nothing less than facing your fears. Our firefighter friends understand this. I don't want to go fight fire or go into a burning building or a dangerous situation with anybody who isn't scared. They'll tell you that. There's no way I want to go into that kind of situation unless I'm next to somebody who's afraid to die, who's afraid to get hurt, who's afraid of the potential that exists in this dangerous situation. Courage is facing that and dealing with it as best you can with all the skill and all the practice that you can minimizing the risks, but it still takes courage to do the scary thing. And it's no less the same in the case of the church. We're going to go toward goals that God has set before us that may, that may involve encounters with giants. And as I've experienced it, encounters with dragons. And the dragon is in scriptural language a symbol of Satan. I wish I could tell you the depth of emotion that I have felt many times as I've walked that Ruthie road between this church and that house over there. 
Many times as I walk towards that house, I'm praying about my family. And many times as I'm walking towards this church, I'm praying about this church. And to me, both our family and both sets of lives are intertwined. And there's this deep responsibility that I feel for the well-being of both. And so many times those are in conflict with each other. And then there's my own spiritual journey where I deeply desire to please God and to honor God. And I doubt myself and I question myself and I'm facing the dragons down and I'm catching a lot of heat. And at, at least a few times I have found myself on my knees about halfway next to that hump that I like to call the septic summit. When I'm standing next to that thing, somewhere about midway between my worlds, I find God is most eager to talk with me. And there have been a few times when I've knelt in that pathway. Over the last six years, I've walked that pathway in the rain and the snow and the sun and the heat and all that we have here. Listen to the birds and the animals that are around here. And I've followed a lot of tracks back and forth across that pathway. And I've spent a lot of time in the presence of God along that pathway. And the answer has always been the same. Dan, do you trust me? And I have to say with a trembling voice, yeah, I do. Because I can't help it. You see, a lot of the things I say to you seem like they're catchy little pithy phrases that I'm using to sort of inspire you. But I got news for you. They were inspiring me before I ever tried to use them on you. And one of the things that I've learned years ago in my own life as a pastor or as as a person of faith, I should say, before I became a pastor, was that it really, really means something different when you worship God because you just can't help it. When you trust God because you just can't help it. When it's the only thing you can do. In a few weeks when I introduce myself to a new congregation, I'll share the story of my calling. And one of the things I'll tell them about is that story of Peter when he looks to Jesus and he, Jesus asks him, well, are you guys going to quit on me too? Are you bailing on me now too? And Peter looks at him and says, where else would we go, Lord? When that, when that realization hit me in my personal spiritual life, I knew that I was sold out to Christ. And you know, it wasn't dramatic and it wasn't public. It was just a change in my perspective. Deep inside, I knew that I could not imagine any other way of being than to put all of my faith in Christ and all of my future, and all of my family's wants and needs, and everything else, and all the demands that put on me as a pastor, and all of it, it's, it belongs to Christ. And I can't help but serve Him, and only Him. And that's why when the chips are down, when things aren't looking good, when things are scary, when the dragon's breathing down on me, that's when I go to my knees, and I say, but I can't Help trusting you, Lord. I wish I could explain this to you in a better way. All I can say is, is you must believe me. There comes a point when Satan knows that he can't push you any further. There's a point where you realize, just as Wesley taught us in his own particular language, where you realize your sin has no power over you anymore. 
where Satan can tempt you and can frighten you and breathe fire on you, but he can't defeat you because you have been covered. You have been protected. Now, sometimes you've got to go to your knees and you have to say, I'm scared. I feel defeated and discouraged. I'm frightened. But I can't help it, Lord. I love you and I honor you and I'll give you all I have. I pray this for you. I do. So together we've moved towards God's purpose. And it really has been a lot of fun. It's not like it's been terrible all the time or anything. It's actually been fun most of the time. And when it was difficult, as I said in that other thing I shared with you, it has been difficult because when we were looking to really trust and obey the Holy Spirit's leadership, we were bound to get assaulted by Satan. It's plain and simple. If you aren't causing him any problems, he won't cause you any problems. But as soon as you start putting up a pretty good offense against Satan, you can pretty well bet that he's coming at you with his own defense and offense. It's just the nature of the thing. And so we found ourselves in conflict at times. We found ourselves uncertain about things at times. But it really wasn't anything personal. It was just a battle between the will of God and something else. And we stuck to looking for the will of God, even if we made mistakes along the way. And for that, I'm truly grateful that we never lost focus, just like Joshua. And there's one last thing I want to say to you about this passage we just read. Did you notice that the priests only had to step to the edge of the water for the water to stop and for them to be on dry ground? They actually didn't have to wade into the water or even get wet. They just came to the edge of the water and that's when it stopped. And as soon as the last priest lifted the last toe off of the river bottom, the water came back. You see, God wants you to be that confident, that sure that you're going to be okay. And that's why we need our stones of remembrance once in a while. One of my favorite hymns includes a line about looking to your Ebenezer. That's a stone of remembrance. And that's why we put them up once in a while. Sometimes our stones of remembrance aren't really stones. Our Ebenezers can look like a lot of things, but we need these symbols periodically that remind us that our God is faithful. And to remind us how far we've come. I'm really glad that I can at least share a picture with you of what we looked at six years ago so that we can remember how far we've come. And I can't wait to hear about what God does here in the future because I have no doubt that God is here and God will carry you on well into the future. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that your word has always been here and that it's so real and so true and sure. Help us to continue to be obedient to your word and trusting in your will and your way. Amen.